0: The title of this message is Relational Power, Relational Power, and we'll discover what that means in the next few minutes. But we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, but we'll start reading in verse 15 just for a little context. Ephesians 5, let's start reading together in verse 15. It says, therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and this passage that is before us that's so rich and so challenging and so relationally radical. And we want to be a church that is relationally right, with you, with one another. And we know because of our selfish proclivities that we need your help. And so we ask that, Lord, you'd speak to us today. And that you would reveal to us, Lord, a good understanding, a good theology of the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. And you would stir in us a sincere longing to experience more of the power of the person of the Holy Spirit, that we might live right relational lives with you and with one another. That we be more like you, Jesus, and less like us to your glory. And so, Lord, speak to us. Holy Spirit, you are the teacher of all things. Teach us. We pray together that every word that comes from this mouth will come from your throne and will be for the glory of God. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, as you'll remember, we dealt with something called relational holiness. Relational holiness. And now we're looking at the biblical concept of relational power. The premise that we were working from last week was this. That if Jesus is the founder and the center and the head of the church, then the church ought to look like him. You remember that? Remember talking about that? If Jesus is the founder and the center and the head of the church, then the church ought to look like him. And we applied that to relationships last week. We ought to do relationships like Jesus. Building on that now, the premise that we're dealing with this morning is this. That we cannot possibly look like Jesus relationally unless we tap into the power of God continually. We cannot possibly look like Jesus relationally unless we tap into the power of God continually. And that's what our text is talking about. Last week, again, we spoke about the fact that we have been made holy through the cross, that we might now live holy in the world. And that the motivation for that comes from our identity as Christians. As Christians we have a brand new identity. We're no longer identified by brokenness, by sin, by what we did, by what was done to us, by failures, by frailties, but we have a new identity in the person and the power of Jesus Christ. A new identity as we spoke of last week as holy accepted, adored, loved, cared for. And that then our behavior in the world flows out of this identity. That the call of the Christian is to now act accordingly. This is who we are in Christ. This is the reality positionally. So let's make it a reality practically. And then everything in the Christian life comes from that new identity, of being accepted, adored, adopted, and all right with God. And because we're accepted with God, we can accept others. Because we're adored by God, we can adore others. Because we're all right with God, we can be all right with each other. Relational rightness flows from the identity that we have from being in relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything comes out of that. That's the impetus. Now beyond identity and impetus, we want to be aware of power and enabling. Okay, power and enabling. For the New Testament Christian, we understand God's commandments to be God's enablements. God's commandments to be God's enablements. He he doesn't command us anything that he won't enable us to do by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That's New Testament Christianity. That there's not just a standard that's set that we could never achieve as there was in the law. But that the law has been now written in our hearts and the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the church and we are now enabled by the Spirit of God to live like Christ for the glory of Christ. Unless we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we cannot live like Jesus. That's the crux of the issue for today. Now, at the end of last week's sermon, relational holiness, we mentioned that. We mentioned that we can't do this without the power of the Holy Spirit, and we prayed for that. We went into our second set of worship with our hands lifted, praying, Holy Spirit, we need you. We need power from on high to do this, to be like Jesus. But it would be helpful now if we develop a slightly more articulated understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Where we would start with articulating that understanding is by, is by getting the importance and the necessity of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if we always get the profundity of the Holy Spirit given to us. For example, Jesus speaking in John 16, verse 7, said this, I tell you the truth, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Don't miss that. That's radical, what Jesus said. He said, I'm telling you the truth to his disciples who saw him, who knew him, who touched and handled him physically. He said, it's better for me to leave you physically that the Holy Spirit might come. That's radical. I don't know if we would agree with that statement, but we need to because it's Jesus. (laughs) But I think if we had our druthers, we would say, no, I want Jesus here physically. But Jesus himself is saying, it's better if I leave physically that the person of the Holy Spirit might come and work in your lives. That's radical. That's difficult for us to believe, but that's what Jesus said. And so we need to begin to grasp them, uh, the Christ-revealed value of the Holy Spirit, the importance, the necessity, how wonderful the Holy Spirit is. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot we could talk about with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, and you know, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, some of you are like, Oh, careful, Pastor Britt. Don't, careful now. And others of you are like, Oh, come on. I've been waiting for this for two weeks. Give it to us. There's a lot that we could talk about. But we'll keep it to this. Look at this important activity of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, again, speaking in John 16, 13 and 14. Jesus says, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak of His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. And He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and disclose it to you. That's what I want to narrow in on there is that one of the primary ministries, work, goal, activities of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus. How do we know when the Spirit is moving in a group of people, a body of people, a church? Because Jesus is glorified. The more people are talking about, thinking about, singing about, acting like Jesus, the more we could say, wow, the Spirit is moving in that place. Again, Jesus in John 15, 26, says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Notice now, again, the Holy Spirit will bring glory to Jesus in his work, his activity, and he will testify about Jesus and we will testify also. And what Jesus reveals here is something very important for the church, that there is a partnership between the Christian and the Spirit of God. There's a shared work. There's a common goal between the Spirit of God and the people of God, which is to see the Son of God glorified among all the nations. We are called to testify, and the Holy Spirit testifies and it's a partnership, and it's a work of the Spirit through us to testify, witness of, and glorify Jesus Christ. And this is the substance of Christianity, to witness about and to glorify Jesus. This is what it's all about. We make it about all sorts of other things, and we complicate it, and we mess it up, and make it about this, that, and the other, but it's about Jesus and His glory. We exist for His glory. We were created for His glory. We are called out of the world to be the church for His glory, and we are sent into the world to represent Him for His glory. This is a sum and the substance of Christianity to witness about, to glorify Jesus Christ. And we do this through sort of a two-pronged approach. We do this by... What we say and what we do. That's how we witness about Jesus and glorify Jesus. What we say and what we do. Proclamation and demonstration. It's not an either or, it's a both and. We need to proclaim who Christ is and we need to demonstrate who Christ is. That's a call upon the church. And that's the partnership that we have with the Holy Spirit. He reveals truth. He's a teacher of all things who guides into truth. And he is the one who empowers us to be witnesses and to live according to the truth of Jesus Christ. Proclamation and demonstration. After Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, Peter preached, but it was also said of him by others he's been with Jesus. There was something heard and there was something seen. He talked about Jesus, and he patterned his life after Jesus. And what Jesus says about this proclamation and this demonstration that we see in the book of Acts in the history of the church is that it is impossible to do without the power of the person of the Holy Spirit because it is the job of the Holy Spirit to try to proclaim or demonstrate To witness for and to glorify Jesus apart from the daily filling of the Holy Spirit is useless because it is the work of the Spirit. It is not ours alone. We're called into a partnership, but it is the work of the Spirit. In fact, Jesus forbade the church from trying to do mission or ministry without the empowering of the Spirit. You're familiar with it, many of you. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Jesus speaking, or he'll speak in a minute. It says, Gathering them to him, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And you will receive power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, don't miss this. These disciples to whom Jesus is speaking had been with him now for about three years. They had done some ministry with him. They had seen him multiply the bread and the fish. They'd seen him walk on the water. They'd seen him raise little girls from the dead. They'd seen him unstop the ears of the deaf and open the eyes of the blind and strengthen the legs of the crippled. They'd seen him touch the lepers and heal them. They had been commissioned by him. They'd seen the resurrected Christ. Thomas had touched the womb. And yet Jesus commands them not to even attempt mission or ministry or Christian living until they've got the power. And the bummer is that so many Christians are living apart from the daily power of the person of the Holy Spirit and wondering why our lives are fruitless, wondering why getting on mission. And being used for the glory of God, by the grace of God, through the person of the Holy Spirit, seems so foreign to us. Christ commanded them to wait until the Holy Spirit came upon them. And then he said, you will be my witnesses. And remember, to witness means to proclaim and to demonstrate. Proclamation and demonstration. We talked about last week that we witness for Jesus when we do relationships like Jesus. Jesus. That's a huge part of what it means to be a witness. What is clear now is that we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when it comes to understanding the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the initial filling, or what Jesus refers to here, as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then we have subsequent fillings, or fillings that come afterwards As needed. That's clearly what we have from the book of Acts and what we see in our text because our text is telling us to be continually filled. Jesus talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let me say a couple basic things. Number one, it's for every believer. Every single believer needs to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, every believer has the Holy Spirit in them. You are not a believer unless the Holy Spirit indwells you. We are born again by the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 8, it's the Spirit of God that bears witness with us that we are children of God. We are indwelt by the Spirit, and we are sealed by the Spirit of God. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God. In John chapter 20, Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Spirit. The Spirit was in them. I mean, if Jesus breathes on you and says, receive the Spirit, I just figure you're going to get it. The Spirit was in them. And yet now, he says, but wait a minute, there's more. Wait until the Spirit comes upon you. Two different prepositions, in and upon. The Spirit is in every believer, and every believer needs the Spirit to come upon them. Now, here's the point of disagreement. Disagreement. Depending on your tradition, your background, some people think that that's automatic for every believer, that every believer automatically has the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and other traditions, other parts of the family believe that it's a second experience, and we can debate when that happens and the intricacies of that, and I have spoke about that at length in other teachings, and you can get that on our website. If you search our message page, Holy Spirit, you'll find some teachings on that, but we'll leave it at this for today whether you think it happens at the moment of conversion or later on, the question is this, do you have power? Are you being a witness for Jesus Christ? Because if the Holy Spirit has come upon you, then you're working from that identity of the Spirit in you as a child of God because you now have power to witness of that. So we could talk all day long about when and if and blah, blah, blah. But do you have it? It is for every believer. What's very clear in the book of Acts is that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon them, just like Jesus said, and that those same disciples who had the Spirit come upon them then had the Spirit fill them several other times through the book of Acts. So what's very clear is there is that initial baptism and there are subsequent fillings. And these come at times of need in the Christian experience, at times of need in the Christian experience. A Christian life is to be a supernatural life. And if you're gonna live supernaturally, then you're gonna need the power of the Holy Spirit. If you choose to live nominally or normally, then you don't need the power of the Holy Spirit and you wanna experience that, and that's a travesty. But if you wanna live supernaturally from that identity of Christ in you, then you're gonna need the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways that we're called to live supernaturally is relationally. And the neat thing is, we can look at the book of Acts and see how these fillings of the Holy Spirit always had relational outcomes. In fact, let's go to the book of Acts real quick. Acts chapter 2. Keep your finger in Ephesians because we'll be back. Need you to move quickly because we're behind. Acts chapter 2. A few examples. The fillings with the Holy Spirit and their relational outcome. Now in Acts chapter 2, of course, we have the Spirit coming upon the church for Pentecost. And it says in Acts 2, 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So they're filled with the Spirit now for the first time, that initial baptism, the church is. Now look at the relational outcome in Acts 2, starting in verse 42. Acts 2.42 says about this, these individuals, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. You see the relational outcome? They've got one mind, they're of one of court. They're falling over each other to give away their junk. How radical is that? These are the same dudes who in the Gospels were arguing about who was the greatest. These are the same guys that made their mommy go to Jesus and say, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, I want my boys to sit on your right and your left, James and John. These were the same arrogant, self-centered, self-promoting boneheads. Now that they've been filled with the Holy Spirit, it's a different relational reality. Now they've got one mind and one accord the same ones who in Mark chapter 9 couldn't cast the demon out, now there's signs and wonders and power on display. And they've got favor with all the people. There's a different relational reality because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. There is a love and a unity that was absent before. And the church needs love and unity. And the world needs to see love and unity because Jesus said, you'll know them by their love for one another. And only when they were filled with the Spirit was there this relational outcome of love and unity. Look at another one in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, the disciples are in trouble with the religious leaders. And uh, they're questioning them in verse 7. The religious leaders are asking the disciples, by what power or in what name have you done this? And then look at verse 8 then peter filled with the holy spirit here again chaos okay, subsequent filling once again in the moment of need then peter filled with the holy spirit said and he begins to preach this incredibly bold message to these guys just in their face about christ whom they crucified look what it says in verse 13 Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, they understood that they were uneducated and untrained men and they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. There was a radically different quality in their lives because of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that the only way that Peter was recognized as having been with Christ prior to Pentecost or the Holy Spirit coming upon the church was because of his accent He had a Galilean accent. He he had a certain way of speaking, like the Jews from the north spoke, like Jesus spoke because he was raised in Nazareth. And they recognized him as one of those who had been with Jesus because he had the same accent. Now there's a quality of life and a spirit-given confidence that identifies them as having been with Jesus. You see, before, they had the right sounds, the right language. They had the Christianese but none of the power. Now there's a transformed life because the power of the person of the Holy Spirit is upon them and working through them. And now they're being recognized by the observing world in a radically different way. Look at the relational outcome here, verses 19 and 20 of Acts 4. Peter and John answered to those leaders who were telling them to stop talking about Jesus and said this, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. But we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. What's that relational outcome from the filling of the Holy Spirit? It's freedom from fear. Peter previously operated from a place of fear. When he denied Christ, a little servant girl... I'm sorry, but the lowest in that society, a little servant girl, said to him, you are with Jesus too. And he began to curse and swear that he wasn't with Jesus. It doesn't mean he used foul language. It means he said something to the effect of, may God kill me and damn me if I'm lying. I don't know Jesus. Why? Because he was afraid of rejection, results, circumstances, Where he once operated relationally from a place of fear, he was now operating from a place of freedom. This is what the power of the person of the Holy Spirit does in our lives. This is a radically transformed relational reality from fear to freedom. Look at another one, again in Acts 4, starting in verse 29. The whole church gets together now, and they pray because they're being threatened by the religious leadership. It says, And now, Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence, while thou dost extend thy hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And begin to speak the word of God with boldness. Okay? Here's another feeling. At an extreme moment of need, they're being threatened. Look at the relational outcome, verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell and bring the proceeds in the cells and lay them at the feet of the apostles. And they distributed to each as each had need. The relational outcome. They were united of one accord, one of mind. There was power in mission and in ministry, and there was a sharing that just isn't common in humanity. The final one that we see is from Acts 7. Look there. This one's radical. Acts 7, what's going on is that the church is going to have its first martyr, Stephen. Now, Stephen in verse 51 says to the religious leaders, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised. worst thing you could say to a Jew and a Jewish leader. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Look at verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, There's that available power in an extreme moment of need. He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen. And he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Look at the relational outcome of the filling of the Holy Spirit in verse 60. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. That is a radical relational outcome. They were murdering him. He would be brutally disfigured In moments, and he knew it because he was a Jew, he had seen it. In moments, his skull would be crushed into the dirt of the ground. And his last words were, Lord, forgive them. This is radical. This is the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. And the relational outcome, extreme forgiveness, freedom from fear, love and unity, abnormal sharing. And the same Holy Spirit is available to every believer all the time. What our text is telling us is to be continually filled. And if you seek now, if you seek to live supernaturally, otherworldly as it pertains to relationships, then you're going to need the Holy Spirit. If you choose to live a normal life as it pertains to relationships like the rest of the world with unforgiveness functioning from fear and a a fear of rejection and a sense of bitterness, then you can miss the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not even trying to be like Christ. You don't need the power of Christ. And what's worse is that when we practice that relational wrongness, we can quench the person of the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit within the church when we're acting anti-Christ. And so back to our text in Ephesians 5.18. Again, it says, don't be drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, meaning a waste, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, it's a command. When it says be filled, it's in the imperative mood. It's a command, not a suggestion. It's in the present tense, which means it is a continuous action in the life of the believer. We could translate it be, being, being, continually filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a command. It's plural in the Greek, meaning it's for all of us. And it's in the passive voice, which means it happens to us. This isn't something we can muster up. It's not something we try to do. It's not a performance thing. It comes from the new identity, and it's empowered by the person of the Spirit. He comes upon us, and works through us. It's a command, it's continuous, and God does it to us. And then all those things that we see in verses 19 through 21 are the relational outcomes. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in your heart to the Lord, that means that we'll have affections that are fixed on Jesus That's what that's talking about now, affections fixed on Jesus. When our affections are fixed on Jesus, we deal with people differently. Haven't you ever noticed the more you love Jesus, the more you love people? Anybody ever experienced that? Have you noticed that the less you're near to Jesus, the less you seem to be loving the Lord, the more people just bug the snot out of you? I am so like that day to day. When our affections are set on Jesus, which is a result of being continually filled with the Holy Spirit, we're gonna do relationships like Jesus. Here's the deal. We were made to worship. We were created by God to worship. And if you don't worship Christ, you're gonna worship someone or something, usually yourself. But the more that we exalt Christ, the more we're humbled. The more we are humble the better we do relationships. The higher we lift God, the lower we are, the better we do relationships. Let me say this. The root of all broken relationships is the exaltation of self. The root of all broken relationships is the exaltation of self. So by being continually filled with the Holy Spirit, he helps us to place our affections on Jesus, which helps us to love people like Jesus. Thankfulness because of Jesus is what we see in verse 20 is an outflow being filled, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even to the Father. Just realizing that as we're continually filled with the Holy Spirit, we have this attitude of gratitude, and what an attitude of gratitude does is keep us from a place of bitterness. It's what it does. It says, giving thanks to the Lord in all things, when things are awesome and when things stink. Having that attitude of gratitude, which is a result of being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you how to do that in a minute. Having an attitude of gratitude, the result of continually being filled, puts us in a generous place with others and keeps us from bitterness that affects relationships. And then finally, verse 21, mutual submission and the fear of Jesus. And this would be a sermon in and of itself, but I'll spare us. Verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Here's what that means. We're able to be humble toward each other and serve each other because of who Christ is. Christian behavior is based on who Jesus is, not who we are. That's so freeing. We're able to be humble with one another and serve one another because of who Christ is, not because of who we are, not because of who they are. They don't deserve it. They're not above me. Why would I do that? Why would I submit to them? Why would I be subject to them? It's not about them. It's not about you. It's about who Jesus is. The more we exalt Christ, the easier it is consider others as more important than ourselves, which is what Philippians 3 says we ought to do to be like Jesus. So this supernatural living is only possible through the Holy Spirit. And what it does is it revolutionizes relationships. Here's the last thing I'll say. Get this. Instead of our actions, reactions, and attitudes being people-driven, they're now spirit-driven. Actions, reactions, and attitudes are normally people-driven. Now, they're spirit-driven, which means we don't act out of a place of insecurity anymore because our identity is secure in Jesus. We don't act out of a place of fear anymore because we're found in Christ and we have the confidence of Christ in us. We don't act out of needing the approval or the praise of people anymore because we have the approval of the God of the universe through Jesus. We don't act out of a necessity to perform anymore for our bosses or our fathers or whoever it is that messes us up that way because Jesus performed right on the cross. Our performance is done. We don't operate out of a need to get even anymore. Because Jesus dealt with it at the cross. My sin and their sin, and vengeance is the Lord's. And so when we stop operating with each other out of a place of insecurity, fear, desire for approval, concern to perform, need to get even, when we stop doing that, things get beautiful. I mean, then we're the church. Then we start looking like Jesus. And these are actual possibilities through the power of of the Holy Spirit. How? You gotta ask. You gotta ask. A daily asking. I ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit when I wake up in the morning. I ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit when I'm gonna interact with my neighbors. I ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit when I'm driving home from my work and I know that I've got two very young, needy kids at home and a wife who's dealt with their drama all day long and I'm spent as I'm driving home. God, fill me with your Holy Spirit to do my primary relationships right. Christ, to be like you to this family. Jesus said the Holy Spirit's available for asking. Luke chapter 11. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. You're not going to give him a snake. Or if you're asked for an egg, you're not going to give them a scorpion. If you then, being evil, I love how blunt Jesus is. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, and knock. But here's a caveat. Don't ask until you're willing to surrender. This means making the Holy Spirit president, not just resident. He's not just in you. He's filling you. So you gotta surrender some of those selfish proclivities, some of that drama, some of that bitterness, some of that self-assertion, some of that sin, some of that rebellion. Surrender that. Ask for the power daily, moment by moment, and watch life be cool. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for these truths in your word. We ask now that you would increase our faith in the fact that you are the God who hears and the God who wants to pour his spirit out upon us. Lord, as we now worship you, we do so as an act of surrender. We exalt you and we humble ourselves under your mighty hand. And we ask that you would help us as your church and as individual members thereof to surrender our own dramas and things and stuff. And then you would teach us to really seek you for the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we don't understand everything about the Holy Spirit. Why would we ever think we would? But we know this today. We know we need power. We know we need power to be good husbands and wives, to be good dads and moms, To be good bosses and employees, to be good friends and brothers and sisters, to be on mission, to do relationships like you did, to live from that place of new identity, Holy Spirit, fill us. Prayer team is here, communion is here, you can come get on your face before the Lord, but... This would be a good day to seek the Lord with every fiber of your being for new power from on high to represent Jesus to a world that needs him so bad.